What makes a great solar business? How can you learn from the past and prepare for the future so your solar business thrives? We set out to answer these questions and more. My name is Nigel Morris and I'm the Head of Business Development at Solar Analytics. Welcome to Great Solar Business, proudly brought to you by Solar Juice. Well, hello, solar friends, and welcome back for another episode of Great Solar Business. Uh, this week, I have a guest who I hoped to talk to a couple of weeks ago, and unfortunately, uh, he was unavailable. He's a very, very busy man. Uh, and the reason he is such an important and good guest is because we're going to dive into the topic of the energy market. In fact, what is happening? So let's unravel the energy market. You've all read the papers, so I'm sure you know that the energy market in Australia is in an absolutely unprecedented state of turmoil. You may also have even received notice that your rates will increase or worse still, um, that your retailer has gone bust. So how do we end up here? Is the market broken? What does it mean for the future of solar? And to dive into this topic, I invited the inimitable David Leach, co-host of Energy Insiders with Giles Parkinson and principal of ITK Associates, who provide analysis of electricity, gas and carbon markets to join me. David, welcome to Great Solar Business. Nigel, it's great to be here. Thanks very much. It's, um, it's great. We finally got you over onto the bright side of podcasting, Dave, to come over here to Great Solar Business. So, Dave, I rang you and I asked if you would join me because you're one of the smartest guys I know when it comes to understanding the the sort of intricacies of the energy market. And I quipped, I um, and you quipped, I should get out more if if you're the smartest person. (laughs) I'm glad you remembered that line. I I thought to myself, I won't repeat it live. (laughs) So, David, how how did you get to know so much about the energy market? And and you know, what's your story? What's your elevator pitch and your background? Okay, so my elevator pitch is that um, uh, I started life a long, long time ago as a hippie, uh, uh, moved on from there to being um, a tutor at University of New South Wales for a while in accounting, um, uh, then moved to investment banking or stockbroking, as it was called, at at a variety of firms, ended up doing 33 years at two leading investment banks, JP Morgan and UBS, uh, where I was in charge of utilities research from the time when the only utility was AGL, essentially in the stock market, uh, uh, through through to when it was a reasonable size sector. I left that in 2016 and, um, and started my own consulting business at UBS, uh, where I worked for 10 years. I was part of the global utilities team heading up the Australian section. And the uh, uh, global team, we, we, we had a pretty good team. We would have conferences in, um, you know, in Shanghai or in Boston or in London uh, that, that we would attend and get like, you know, some all the big companies from all over the world would present and so the world's biggest investors. And I worked on the IPOs of a lot of companies that have since uh, been taken over here in Australia. Now, I guess what's left now is AGL, Origin and APA. Wow. Dave, I had no idea that you were a hippie stockbroker uh, in the energy sector. That's such a great backstory. And um, I'm, I'm just going to refer to you from here on in as my hippie stock stockbroker friend. Um, now, Dave, let's get on to the energy market because uh, actually just yesterday afternoon, my good friend Gavin uh, sent me a, a photo of a customer's electricity bill. 
um, that shows the peak rate for energy changing from 63 cents per kilowatt hour to 93 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, Dave, does this sum up the insanity in the energy market right now? Look, I, I think the, um, uh, to be honest, uh, Clark and Dawes did this great YouTube video, which I'm sure a number of our audience have, have seen, where they kind of uh, sent up the electricity industry, um, uh, pointing out that retailers in some ways don't actually offer a whole lot of value beyond uh, at the moment. I mean, the basic function of electricity retailing is to... Uh, have lots of customers who generally have relatively short-term contracts, you know, like uh, household customers, you can essentially one year uh, and, and it's very easy to break that anyway. And um, uh, business customers, you know, typically three years would be, would be a sort of thing. Yep. But of course, generation units are built uh, with lifetimes of 20, 30, 40 uh, or longer. And so a retailer essentially is the intermediary where they contract big and long and sell short uh, and, and, mm -hmm. and small and rely on the numbers of customers that they have to essentially guarantee the volume uh, so that they, they can justify this buying long. Mm -hmm. uh, but the market's become consolidated over time. Uh, originally, the idea when we deregulated markets with the Hilmer reforms back in the mid-1990s, that was the idea of that was to bring all the states together and create the national electricity market and as part of that and break up the state monopolies. And that, mm -hmm. that to an extent, was very successful. Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, uh, but over time, it's a natural thing in most businesses and particularly in energy to have vertical integration. So the generators yes. and the retailers started getting together. Uh, we couldn't include the wires and poles because they're strictly separated by law, rightly or wrongly, and as regulated monopolies. But the market has aggregated so that we've got, you know, like uh, essentially the big three or four retailers controlling yes. Two thirds of the market and controlling yep. most of the coal-fired generation, other than what's owned by Queensland. So that, that's a, that's a long backstory, Nigel. <laughs> um, uh, but the long and the short of it is that uh, this year uh, we've had a shortage of coal, uh, uh, physical coal. We've had, uh, and that's a shortage of coal in Australia. We've had a global shortage of coal uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, obviously, there's a global shortage of gas. That has led mm -hmm. to coal and gas prices going up about four or five hundred percent within twelve months, wow. um, 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 and uh, that has pushed up, uh, led to a shortage of coal-fired electricity generation. There are also some physical outages, quite a lot of them. We don't mm. exactly know how um, how real they were, but we do know that the coal generation fleet is is much older than the global average and coming to the end of its life and really should have been starting to be replaced a decade ago. But the very long um, uh, wars that we've had over what to replace it with have meant that that replacement was delayed. And so we haven't built enough replacement capacity so that when these uh, physical shortages emerged, electricity prices went zooming up. Uh, now, small retailers... It's a, it's, a, it's a perfect storm, really, isn't it? I mean, the, on, the only thing you haven't mentioned that I'm sure that you, 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 you get to eventually is, of course, there's been a political, a lack of political appetite to solve these energy problems as well, or at least, you know, to address them in the way that you and I might think they need to be addressed. But it, is a, it, it really is a perfect storm of circumstances, isn't it? 
Uh, I'm talking too much, but uh, the point I was going to make is that small re- in, an electricity retailer never perfectly hedges their load. Now, the, the trouble with electricity retailing is that you don't know at any given time what your customer demand will be. You can't, you yeah. can't forecast demand exactly. Uh, it's a statistical thing. And nor can you forecast the price. So you've got this problem of uh, double hedging problem. You need to uh, hedge against volume and price. And hedging is always expensive. So mm-hmm. retailers, that's why you get big retailers, because, you know, it's unlikely that, for instance, uh, 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 I don't know, demand in South Australia will be exactly coincident with demand in, in Queensland in terms of mm-hmm. the peak. You know, mm-hmm. even things like daylight daylight saving can move that around, uh, so that you 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 can have you can hedge a bigger load more reliably and at lower cost, easier than you can hedge a small load. And small retailers can't afford to have their own physical um, hedging, which consists historically of you know open cycle gas generators. So that they're more exposed to these problem prices. And from time immemorial. Uh, what we find is that small retailers are under hedged when prices really take off right. uh, and they go broke. It's nothing unusual. Right. And so that's why we've been seeing this, this, these extremes of pricing and while we've seen some go bust and while we've seen some trying to shed customers, it's this, this issue of, you know, lack of depth in their hedge, right? Yes. And some of them are actually run by very smart people. And apparently, I don't know this, but they had their own uh, hedging contracts that were very good. And they decided they could make more money out of closing up shop and selling the hedge contract, uh, which they I get criticized. I get, they get criticized for that, but I'm never going to criticize someone for making money within the law. <laughs> no, yeah, there was a fascinating subtlety in the whole thing. So I've got a couple of questions um, uh, that I'm hoping you might be able to help me understand. And, you know, the energy market is 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 not simple to understand. Let's talk about the big generators. And you and we do have some who some, some of the big ones that are Gen Taylors. I understand that. But um, we, as you rightly pointed out, there's two nuances in the market. One is around state governments and the, the other is around, you know, generation. Are we seeing, and we've seen these, um, we've seen AEMO step in for the in, for the first time in the entire history of the NEM and actually take control of pricing. Um, and, and, you know, it looked sitting on the outside like the generators were absolutely gaming the system uh, at the expense of consumers. They were within the rules, it would appear. No one's particularly been you know, slapped badly, but there were certainly a few warnings. You know, uh, uh, do we have a market that uh, that literally allows big generators to game the system for profit? We have a, uh, a, 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 a an energy market, not a capacity market. That is, we let energy uh, prices, um, and it's it, it's a um, I forget the just temporarily forget the term, but it's everything goes through the pool. You know, yes. it's a gross pool rather than a yes. net pool. So all every all energy goes through the pool, um, and then um, we have side contracts, futures contracts of various sorts uh, that kind of ensure financial outcomes as opposed to physical outcomes. Um, and the fact is, there was a genuine shortage. I mean, still to this day, something between sixty and seventy percent of all the energy that is consumed over 12 months in Australia is from coal. 
And there was actually a shortage of uh, coal generation for those two reasons, for at least two reasons. One reason was that there was an actual physical shortage of coal. How -hmm. could that be? That was caused essentially by the floods. Uh, which which uh, a lot of the coal mines in New South Wales and in Queensland uh, just got impacted by the floods and couldn't produce as much. And then there was all coupled with that, there was a tremendous external demand for coal, uh, both because, say, China uh, electricity had strong growth earlier in the year. Indonesia had its own floods. Indonesia is the world's biggest exporter of coal by tonnes. Australia is the biggest by energy. Uh, and Indonesia had a coal shortage. And then, of course, there was 30 million tonnes of shortage caused by uh, exports out of Ukraine, out of um, Russia. So, mm. so what coal there was available, we wanted to export, or the coal producers did. And you, the, uh, power stations like Araring couldn't get the rail transport that they also needed when they wanted to rail coal in from somewhere else. Yep. Um, so there were all of these things. There's a coal shortage. And then the generators actually broke down. We still got a uh, unit out at Luoyang. Now, the AGL was, you know, very poor. They had a, a breakdown in this unit about two years ago, uh, and they didn't fix it properly. And it's broken down again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that takes out a big whack of capacity. And we've only mm-hmm. got uh, I think it is eight generating companies on the East Coast, um, you know, eight generating new, uh, uh, sites. Uh, they've each got two or three units, so there's more units than that, but it doesn't take much. You know, each one, when it goes out, has a significant impact on price. And if you take a whole lot out of them at uh, once, there was a massive whack out of New South Wales at one stage, mm. uh, then the, the prices do go through the roof. That's, that's mm. the market working. Mm. Okay. So... So you don't think there was necessarily gaming of the system. You think that it was, again, that combination of dramatic events that meant that, you know, supply and demand constraints just did what they did. Um, I, I acknowledge and I, I will remember reading something that you put online about uh, the impacts of the floods when you'd first really tripped over that and the supply and demand issues around, you know, the raw material at the heart of it. And so you, you're telling me that's the key. So... That's the Let's... key. That's not to say that people don't take advantage of these situations. So yes. anyone that's worked in yes. markets, Nigel, knows that uh, markets overplay things. You know, something that starts yeah. out as true in a market gets overplayed and overvalued yes. and it becomes yes. a very crowded trade and, and speculative. And, 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 you know, I'm sure there was a speculative element that got whacked in there and some gaming that got whacked in there as well. There's no doubt. Yes. But the, the fundamentals were genuine. Yeah, gotcha. Great, great explanation. Now, let's talk about, I'm going to sidetrack us just for a moment, if I may, into a a related topic, which is something I stumbled across decades ago, which is state royalties. Um, And and I I happened to notice recently that, you know, many, virtually all state governments take a, a, a clip along, a clip of the ticket along the way in the energy in one form or another, whether it's from royalties on coal mining or, or various other bits and pieces. And I noticed... Uh, not long ago, that Queensland has introduced an escalating royalty rate on windfall gains when prices surge. New South Wales, by contrast, has a flat rate. Now, we're getting into some technicalities here, which I don't fully understand, but I have two issues with this. Number one, I've been somewhat critical of state governments in the past around 
the amount of money that they get from royalties because they become addicted to those huge sums of money for state revenue. And there are some very, very, very material amounts of money that go into state revenue in New South Wales, historically at least, from coal royalties, for example. So, you know, that concerns me. And I've often been critical that I didn't think a state government was ever going to be particularly genuine about the switch to renewables while ever they were so addicted and hooked on those revenues. On the other hand, the Queensland approach applies a, a pseudo cap to the massive profits that companies can make and potentially allows them to create larger income streams into state revenue to hasten a transmission. Optimistic, perhaps. But my question is really, how or when can we wean, should we even try to wean state governments off coal? And what do we replace that income stream with? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, more broadly, uh, coal is essentially, Australia is the world's uh, second largest, maybe third largest by dollar value exporter or sorry, by, by gigajoules um, of, of energy, of thermal energy. And yes. um, uh, by and large, that benefits the investors first uh, and the workers and, and management second, I suppose, and and state governments third, and the federal government hardly at all, uh, except through the balance of trade uh, is where the real benefit comes mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. So that that's the broad, and, and replacing that is indeed an issue, and it's why I have a certain degree of uh, uh, sympathy for those people who say that it will hurt us economically mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to just uh, ban coal and gas like that. It's true, mm-hmm. it will hurt mm-hmm. us. Mm. Um, uh, and yet, at the same time, if we don't do it, we will in the long run be hurt, uh, and the long run is not that long, we hurt a lot more by by global warming, for which Australia is only, you know, a couple of percent contributor in terms of scope one and scope two emissions, but probably about four to five percent of scope three emissions. That is, if mm. you count the emissions from all the coal and gas when it's burnt in the country where it's burnt. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it is um, incumbent on us for a couple of reasons to, work, to to understand what to do about that. And weaning ourselves off state royalties is probably, um, well, increasing the royalties, increasing the tax. You know, the coal taxes have been an argument probably since in Queensland, since, um, and there's the Joe Peterson was in power <laughs> going back a long way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the the question to me is that we don't tax the gas exports enough one way or another federally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my... Yeah, but- there's an interesting balance to be had there, isn't there, between, you know, um, uh, uh, taxing them to taxing all forms of energy, well, whatever it may be, but all forms of energy in such a way that, you know, um, um, governments uh, have enough uh, revenue to institute change as it's required but also you know not so much that they become addicted to it and it's um perhaps an issue that i'd like to come back with we are um progressing quite nicely and you always a great conversation with you but we need to take a short break and hear a word from our sponsors solar juice is australia's leading solar distributor providing complete residential and commercial rooftop solar component solutions SolarJuice aligns themselves with brands that share their values of service, support, quality and value for money. Like their panel brands, REC, Hyundai, Trina and Longy, 
They're inverters, SMA, Fronius and Sungro, along with the Tesla Powerwall battery. Check out solarjuice.com.au and let SolarJuice help you become a great solar business. Great Solar Business is also brought to you by Solar Analytics. From just $40 a year, Solar Analytics can help solar owners save an extra $400 by recommending the ideal energy plan. Solar Analytics, it's different. Learn more at solaranalytics.com.au. Well, welcome back, listeners. I have a special guest in the form of David Leach, and we're talking about what on earth is going on in the energy market. Uh, please do thank, uh, uh, support our sponsors who keep the wheels turning for us here at GSB. Don't forget to give them a like and a share, and perhaps show the, share the show with your friends. Dave, we're on the wrap up now, and what I always like to try and do uh, for our listeners um, in the in in this final session is help them imagine what the future is going to look like. Um, so around energy and pricing, I guess that the one question that a lot of people are asking is how long is this going to last? Um, you know, is this volatility just the future that we're going to live with now? Or is it a, a short-term three-month glitch? Is it, you know, what, how long is it going to last, Dave? Well, it's hard to predict the global coal and oil and gas price side of things. And uh, I would encourage uh, listeners, as I have done, and I'm sure you have done, uh, to, you know, protect yourself against prices by putting some solar on your roof, uh, maybe moving to an electric vehicle. Um, and in my case, I've also put a power wall in, you know, my electricity bills, $20 a month. Uh, we've got seven people in the house this year and an electric car. Um Last July, with three people in the house, before I did as much as I have, the electricity bill was three hundred dollars. So uh, that was for one month, and I hate to think what it would have been this year if I hadn't done all that. And more broadly, for the uh, national market, the uh, cure is to build lots more capacity. And the very broad rule, which would apply in Europe and all over the world, is that you have to build the new capacity before you close the old stuff down. That's what this this coal shortage is is to an extent temporary. The flooding will go away. Uh, the coal price may stay very high, but it will probably come down from where it is. In fact, it will come down, and and the coal generals will be made to work. But this sort of temporary sort of thing has been a very clear illustration that we need lots of new capacity if we're to uh, re- minimise these fluctuations. And so we need to get on with building the new wind and solar. We need to keep uh, rooftop installations being incentivised. Uh, it would be nice if we could also incentivise household batteries to some extent because uh, they are great insurance, not just for the households, but for the whole national market. It would be great if we had some emission standards so that we could reduce our oil import bill uh, and that would make uh, make us all better off. But uh, most of all, we need to build the transmission. We need to build the wind and the solar at the utility level. That is going to be the backbone of going future. Once you've built that, your cost is, uh, you, you pay a, a decent capital cost to build that, probably in the hundreds of billions of dollars. But once you've built it, you avoid all the fuel costs for the coal and gas. So that in the end, the electricity prices are not much different the consumers to what they are today. And I'm pretty confident you can run everything from a household to an aluminium smelter uh, of wind and solar firmed up with uh, batteries and pumped hydro and uh, and the existing hydro that we have and a bit of gas maybe for the last 5 or 10%. Our carbon emissions would fall and the electricity prices would be not that much different. We just need to get on with it. 
<laughs> so, Dave, I'm buying what you're selling. You know, you, you don't have to convince me. Uh, but what you what you just described is not something like it doesn't sound like something that is going to change quickly. Um, now we certainly, I'm very encouraged by, you know, the change in uh, our political environment and the, uh, the intent at least of what we're hearing being said, but it sounds to me, and I'm going to try and tease this out of you, but it sounds like to me, we're going to be in this pickle for a good six months. Well, the first thing that comes along is spring is coming. We've already seen about a $40 drop uh, in New South Wales FY23 futures. Now, it's still dropped to a, a ridiculously high level, but it's down. Okay. We've already okay. seen days... We've had a little, a little shift, right. We've yeah. had a shift. Uh, demand for electricity has passed its seasonal winter peak. Uh, it peaked at about 210 terawatt hours annualised. It doesn't run at that level for the whole year, but just in, in July it peaked, and it's already down to about 190. So we've had a 10% drop in, in demand. Coupled uh, solar production has already started to pick up at both the household and utility level from its annual low, and we're also meant, uh, entering the period where wind production is typically very high, and we've seen uh, NEM-wide NEM records of wind production so the outlook is for the spot price to fall away quite sharply. We're going to go back to a period where in the middle of the day, uh, coal generation is going to struggle to keep going. Uh, gas generation won't be needed as much. And we can save the coal that we have uh, for the evening when it will be needed at the moment. So even in the short and that, term... And that should take price pressure off too, right? Because then as, as demand softens a little, even a little bit, that should help drive price in the right direction, yeah? Yeah, so spot prices are going to come down. That's what I'm saying. They're not yeah. going to come down yeah. to, to as low as we thought they were two years ago, but they're definitely yeah. going to come down quite a bit. And in the right. meantime, we just need to get on with building this new supply. Now, that part of it will take uh, will take time, but the, the, the quickest new supply we can build is to keep putting more rooftop solar on. That's the stuff that can get done very quickly uh, if, if it's done right. Super quick. I'm I'm with you. And so, um, have in your view, David? You know this this. I mean, I I, I can't um, in my own head. Sometimes I have to remind myself and go. You know, the NEM shut down. The market stopped. <laughs> you know, AEMO had to step in and in in the most unprecedented way. And it 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 opened up a big discussion and then we just have also had this political uh, change of will around the fringes of it. Do you think that we may have in fact reached a tipping point in, in energy policy and pricing and those underlying factors that means that perhaps things will never be the same as they were and that we are now tipping over on, on, this, uh, on this genuine push to a much higher proportion of renewables? Uh, well, I, you know, even, I mean, we can clearly see that uh, variable renewable energy, which is the term we use for wind and the two forms of solar, rooftop and utility, even now, just coming out of winter, it's running at 24% of total NEM demand mm. at about uh, 50 terawatt hours annualised. And it will get up to 60 and even 70 terawatt hours by 2030, uh, the New South Wales government scheme, uh, which is going to put uh, a, a large amount, New South Wales is going to move from being an energy importer 
to pretty much a uh, uh, neutral uh, energy consumer uh, and producer and close down its coal stations. And, and it will that will all be running by 2030 and increase the renewable share all by itself. In Queensland, uh, they've still yet to make up their mind what they're doing, but they're still progressing with, you know, uh, two or three very large projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there's a lot coming, this is long and the short of it, Nigel. And uh, as far as a tipping point goes, it, look, these things, I wouldn't be as dramatic. I just think it's steady progress. To me, the tipping point uh, was the uh, AEMO integrated system plan, which mm-hmm. outlined mm-hmm. how we could achieve this essentially wholly inverter-based, wholly renewable energy-based uh, grid uh, and, and keep the lights on and keep electricity prices down. And it wasn't just the production of that. It was the fact that the it was endorsed by the industry as the most likely thing to occur. That was acceptance, mm. right? That, mm. That's your tipping point. That's your vote by the industry insiders, yeah. by the people that know. You know, your fan base has voted and said, yep, you've got the key. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. All right. So we are... We are really, and I, I can't help looking at the the events of the last sort of uh, two or three months and going, well, this might have just helped speed things up a bit. It's kind of like that conversation you don't really want to have that you know you have to have, and uh, it's uh, uncomfortable and awkward, but it does actually move things along. So it certainly... And Nigel, certainly... that's the same globally, right, which we've yeah. all said. Yeah. I mean, Germany's not going to be buying as much gas from Russia, right? Whatever, yeah. it's not going to... There's going to be this move to get away from being too reliant on fossil fuels where the price and the cost is uncertain. Once you put the wind and the solar in, bloody great news, you know it's going to keep being sunny and it's going to keep being windy, you know, and and you've locked your price in. And that's the great advantage of it. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. David, we um, sadly are out of time, but it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show finally. And um, But we're out of time. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Nigel, absolutely. And thanks for very much for having me. You're most welcome. Uh, well, friends, that's a wrap. My name is Nigel Morris, and I'm Head of Business Development at Solar Analytics. I hope you picked up some tips on how to build a great solar business, and we'll talk to you again soon. Great Solar Business was brought to you by Solar Juice, Australia's leading solar distributor. Solar Juice aligns themselves with brands that share their values of service, support, quality and value for money. Check out solarjuice.com.au and let Solar Juice help you become a great solar business. Great Solar Business was also brought to you by Solar Analytics. You can now offer Solar Analytics from just $40 per year by connecting it directly to Fronius and SunGrow inverters. No additional hardware required, just extra value. Solar Analytics, it's different. Learn more at solaranalytics.com.au.